Hi, I'm Roger Blackmore. I'm the lead pastor at Genesis Church on Long Island in New York. Thanks for downloading our podcast. I hope it's a blessing to you. If you want to learn a bit more about our church, then check out our website, genesisli.com. And of course, if you live within traveling distance of us, we'd love to see you in person on Sunday morning, worshiping with us. So here's today's message. Enjoy. We're starting a series today, which I called Game Changers. Game Changers. It's, it's hard to believe for me. We're like halfway through February already, but um, this year is going quickly. This year for me has a special significance because come the last Sunday in July that I'd love for you to put in your calendars, that will mark 50 years actually that I've been pastoring. And so, it, so it's a special year. And um, we're making some plans for that Sunday. Um, we're going to make it a real fun day. And we're going to do some stuff afterwards like food, because we do that here well. And fun for the kids, like bouncy things and this and that. And make it a fun day celebrating together, because it's not about me. It's about so many other people. It's about my wife, who's been with me right throughout those 50 years of ministry. It's about all of you who are part of this vision too, but above all, it's about a faithful God who's been with us every step of the way, and I want to tell you this, I'm good for another 50, so if you hang around, I'm, I'm up to that. We were, we, I was looking for a particular old photograph the other day, and, and I came across this picture. What's the matter with you people? So here we are, the young couple just arrived in Scotland to pastor. I'd already been pastoring in the UK, and I was probably 26 or 27 years old in that picture. My wife was 18, of course. Uh, so, so here we are standing outside the church that I had just arrived to pastor in a small community in the northeast of Scotland. I had hair then, you'll have noticed, of course, but you were too polite to point out, right? But I had the same glasses. Buddy Holly still lives. So, uh, but, but you know, when I, I put that on social media and a friend of mine commented, not on the picture of us, but, but over on the right-hand side, there's the board outside the church that lists what services we had. And actually, that list was incomplete. Uh, our schedule was unbelievable. Like, looking back, it was ridiculous. Because we did what I always say nowadays we must never do. We almost like lived in church. And God didn't make us to live in church. God made us to let our light shine in the world that we're part of. So we had stuff virtually every night of the week. But Sunday was a marathon. Sunday we had a prayer meeting at 8 o'clock. Then we had our morning service at 10.30. And then we went home very quickly, and it was a small village. Everybody kind of could get around. You could walk around. And the afternoon, we did our children's program. That was packed. There were only like 130-odd kids in the local school in the village, and we had over 100 in our Sunday afternoon Sunday school for children. So that was Sunday afternoon. Then you'd go home and and kind of relax for a few minutes. Then we went back, and at 6 o'clock, we had the evening service. And then after the evening service was over... In the summertime, we'd go out and do street meetings around the town. And then once a month, we'd go to the hospital in the town next to us. And um, these were in days when political correctness hadn't ruined everybody's sense of 
sanity. And uh, we, we went around the wards in the hospital and we'd sing a hymn in each of the wards to the patients there and talk to them all. And then you'd come home about 9, 9.30 at night. And you know what I did when I got home after that day? I sat in a dark room by myself. I was done. I didn't even put the lights on. Joe used to say sometimes she'd come in and say, do you want the light? No, 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 just leave me. And, and God bless her. I, you know, I love her to death, but I didn't even need Jill with me just then. I needed to decompress from people and stuff. You ever been there? Yeah. Well, I want to tell you today you're in good company. In Mark's gospel and chapter 6, it says this about Jesus. Because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, his disciples, come with me by yourselves. Like, let's get out of here. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves to a solitary place. Even Jesus needed to decompress. All the time, people around him and everyone with their needs. And he said to the disciples, come on, we, we need some space. So they got into a boat, and they went across the Sea of Galilee. However, here's how John's gospel continues that story, John chapter 6. A great crowd of people followed him. Now, apparently, they walked around the lake. Jesus, the disciples, went across the lake. They probably had a bit of time to themselves once they got there. But this crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. So then Jesus went up to a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The people came. Jesus taught them the whole day. Here's what it says in verse 5. When Jesus looked up towards the end of the day, saw a large crowd was there, he said to Philip, where can we buy bread to feed these people? Just as an aside, we do church the way Jesus did church. Okay, if they were going to be there, he was going to feed them. Where can we find bread to feed these people? He said this to stretch Philip's faith. He already knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 silver pieces wouldn't be enough to buy bread for each person to get a piece. Hey, Philip, how are we going to fix this? Philip said, we can't. Like, you need a fortune to do it. And here they were out in the middle of nowhere. It's like, you know, and it was Sunday and Chick-fil-A was closed. So what do you do? There was no way they could do it. But he says Jesus knew already what he was going to do, but he said this to see how Philip was going to respond. But the fact is they, they needed to feed these people because apparently it had been a long time without food, and they were afraid that if they left there that you know, they wouldn't have the strength for the journey home. And really what Jesus wanted Philip to do was he wanted Philip to get to the place where he said, we can't do this. And when Philip got to the place of saying, we can't do this, Jesus said, now watch what I can do. We're terrified of being in the place where we can't do this, aren't we? Come on, tell the truth. It's Sunday and you're in church, right? We don't like being in the place where a thing seems hopeless and we seem helpless and like there's, there's nothing we can, we can do. But here's the thing. When we can't, God can right? When we can, God shut out. 
So I think God likes us to be in situations when we can't. And, and as our journey goes along, we get to a place perhaps where we trust God a little bit more and, and not being able to see a solution doesn't freak us out quite as much. There was a, an old prayer that goes back into the history of the Christian church. One line goes like this, Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. You know we've no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Or as a number of you will be very familiar, it's a great place to come to the position where we acknowledge and we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, as our friends here Sunday mornings would share, or whatever it might be. We admitted we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. You come to the place where you admit, I haven't got this. Actually, the second statement there of the 12 steps says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. When we're at the end of ourselves, it's actually a good place to be because that's when God does his best work. Recognizing we're out of options might be scary, but it's the way we open the door to God. And the last time I checked, Jesus is not limited to what's possible. As is often the case, here on the hillsides by Galilee, God came through in a totally unexpected way. Look what it says in verse 8 there of John chapter 6. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Now, most of you know this story reasonably well, but bear with me as I take a look at this again. So Andrew says, there's a lad here, he's got five loaves and two fish, and so the boy gives them to Jesus, and Jesus says to the disciples, get everybody to sit down in groups of 100. So he organizes the thing. And then he prays, and then he starts to break this bread and this fish up and to put it into baskets for the disciples to serve them. And as he rips it up, breaks it up, whatever, like he keeps on breaking and he keeps on breaking and it doesn't get any smaller and it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going until in the end they've taken the food around and they fed, the Bible says, they fed 5,000. And then there was a load of bread left over afterwards, 12 basketfuls that remained. Game changer. Now, the game changer in that story was not Jesus, I'm going to suggest to you. Of course, he performed the miracle. The game changer in that story, though I started here when I started getting things ready, was actually not the boy with the loaves and fishes. I believe the real game changer in the story that we've just taken a look at is Andrew who valued a small boy enough to make him a part of the story. Andrew said, there's a lad here. He took notice of this small boy. Now, when I say they fed 5,000 people, the Bible actually says they fed 5,000 men plus women and children. Now, in that culture and society, look, 
I'm sorry to say this, I'm not justifying it, but it's like apparently they counted the men. And there were women and children. So the men counted, they counted, or maybe they just gave up. 5,000, it's like, I'm done with counting. Yeah, there were, let's just tell him there were a lot of other people here too. I don't know. So they counted 5,000 men, but then were the, then were the women, and then there was the children. And, and, and children were, were such an incidental part of things. But the game changer in that story was the disciple who saw a young boy and said what, who this is and what he's got to offer is important. There is a lad here. It's really the turning point in that story. And one of the things I want to really emphasize today is we must constantly recognize that every person has God-given potential. Every person born has God-given potential. Andrew looked at the boy who nobody else might have taken any notice of, but the fact is he recognized that he could be part of the story. When I was, um, I was in the UK in May of last year, and, and just the way my travels there took me. I visited my home city for the first time in 25 years. And I just had a day there and wandered nostalgically around the streets where I'd lived and the schools I'd been to and whatever else. And, and just around the corner from our house, just a block away from our house, there was this church. And, I, 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 and this, this church had a children's program on a Monday night. And I, I guess, I don't know, maybe I was nine years old or something like that. Uh, I started going there on a Monday night to their children's program. And we'd sing, you know, we'd sing children's Christian songs and we'd, we'd do Bible quizzes and we'd play games and we'd have fun. And most weeks I never saw the end of it because I was thrown out for misbehaving. <laughs> now, I know that's hard to believe because I'm a reformed character nowadays. Um, but, but they th I got thrown out most weeks. Um, uh, there was a week, a friend of mine and I, they threw us out. They had a little foyer. And as we were, they threw us out. We opened those big doors, or one of them, and we went into the foyer. There was a fire extinguisher. So we thought it would be fun just to set a bit of it off. We did not know as kids that once those things start spraying foam, you can't stop them. So I, I actually never went back on a Monday night after that. Uh, no, I did. I did. One of the things they used to do was you, you had a, like a card you had to take every week, and, and you'd get like stamps on your card, one for attendance, one for remembering a Bible verse from the previous week, and um, I guess you might have got one for behavior, but I, I never hit that one. Um, but, you know, you, there were those, and then at the end of like the series, they had their prize night, and then they had all the prizes laid out with different star values or whatever, and, and, and you could go and pick what you wanted. And, and here's me as a kid, nine years old or something like that, and I go and look, and there's a little green New Testament. And I picked it up, and I, I saw that, and I said to the guy who ran it, how much is this again? He told me however many it was. I said, yeah, I don't have enough. He said, well, that's a pity. He said, maybe the next sessions, if you behave a little better, you'll have enough. And I said, yeah, that's good. So I picked up a couple of other pieces of stuff I didn't really want. And, uh, and that was it. And I was about to leave. And this guy called me. And he said, Roger, you didn't earn this, but I really feel you ought to have it. And he gave me the little green New Testament. 
Fast forward about six years, seven years from then. So then I'm a teenager who's come to know the Lord. And because there was a, you know, there's a lot of us kids who lived in a small house. Some mornings I'd get up a little early and I'd go out of the house and I'd walk a few blocks from our house down by the river. And I'd sit by the river and I'd read my little New Testament. My green New Testament became my companion in my morning readings. And one morning while I was sitting there, I opened my New Testament and I read these words in 1 Corinthians that I'd never seen before. Of course, it was the King James Version because that's about all we had. Though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I do not preach the gospel. And, and that scripture hit me like a ton of bricks that morning. I'd already started, young as I was, to do a little bit of speaking here and there, youth groups, stuff like that. And that morning, sitting by the river with the Green New Testament that I never deserved, I felt God was saying to me, you've got to preach the gospel. And part of the reason I'm standing here all these years later is because God put it on my heart when I was a teenager. Here's what I really want you to do. And it's nothing about you. You've got to do it. Necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You know what I think was a part of my story? It was the man who saw a boy who was a pain in the butt and said, I want you to have this. Never underestimate the value of a child. Jesus was sitting one day, and in Mark chapter 10, it says this. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, I understand the disciples were kind of, I, I guess, trying to protect Jesus a little, guard him a little, because everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. But, but, you know, Jesus was the profound preacher. He raised people from the dead. And it's like, you want him to bless your children? No, you know, he's too busy. And Jesus said, don't you dare. You let the children come to me. There, there, there's a quote that is attributed to both Aristotle and uh, St. Ignatius. So between the two of them, one of them came up with it. And it simply says this, give me a child until he is seven and I will show you the man. Give me a child until he is seven. The child is shaped in those seven years. A survey was done by the International Bible Society, and they found out that 83% of U.S. Christians make their commitment to Jesus between the ages of four and 14. 83%. So we want to see people come to Christ. The most fruitful place we're going to see that is people that are between those ages. Did I say 8 and 18? 4 and 14. Right, are we good? 
Okay, Sunday, right? We good? All right. I'm just checking where I am and what I'm doing. 4 and 14. Between the ages of 4 and 14, 83% of people come to Christ. That would suggest to me that as a church, 83% of our resources ought to be focused on people between 4 and 14. Something to think about, right? The game changer in John chapter 6 was Andrew who recognized the worth of a child. And you know, the, the thing about parents wanting to take their children to Jesus, years ago now, when, when I, I had two grandsons at that time, they were young, and because you love to do things with your grandkids that are special, in a moment of insanity, I said I'd take them to the mall to see Santa. It's awful, right? I needed to be in a black room by myself after that as well. So we stood on this line forever and ever and ever. And then eventually we're all ready and, and, and we're just, it's just a couple to go. And, and one of the boys says, I don't want to go. No, it's good. We're gonna, no, it's good. He's, he's going to be good. I don't want to see him. I don't want to go. I'm afraid. No, it's all right. It's good. You're going to see him, kid. Uh, <laughs> But he was terrified. He didn't want to get near Santa. You know what I love about this? Where it says that they brought their children to Jesus. You, you know what? Kids are smart. And kids know when people are caring and genuine and interested. And it's almost like there's something there that's unseen. But Jesus was the kind of person that children wanted to be with and the parents took them to him. In fact, Jesus said this in Mark chapter 9 and verse 42. If anyone causes any of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Jesus said, don't you mess with kids. Amen. That's what he said. Well, in different words. Elevating the value of children. From the day we started, we recognized the value of children's ministry and of the children God makes a part of our church family. And we were blessed for years um, to be able to offer top-rate children's ministry programs, and we were blessed with teams of volunteers who headed those up. And we were, we were so able to do that. And then um, about two years ago now, we came to the point where we recognized, you know what, there's such a commitment to children's ministry. Uh, we need somebody kind of who's got more time, who's a staff member to really focus on this. And uh, that was the year that we found faith, or she found us, but God brought us together. And she came, and she is now our children's director and has been doing a fantastic job with that, with the team that are around her. And what, what we, what we um, one of the things we talked about was, as well as getting a director in place, we needed to, we wanted to really make our kids slash youth area really pop. Like when we did this building, we did it very basically. Number one, because kind of the industrial looks cool. Number two, we had a limited amount of money. And we said, but the kids area should really, this should be the best hour in a child's week. That would be the goal. Is that fair enough? And so we said, we'd love to be able to do that. And so we talked about it. We talked about what we do with that whole area over there. And, and then I said, you know, let me talk to my friend Mel McGowan, who does outrageous, incredible, huge design products for, for mega churches and for, for, 
for huge events. And they're working on a thing in Dollywood just now um, and something in Vegas. Um, and let's talk to Mel. And, and Mel came here in last summer. And uh, in a few weeks' time, I'm going to be able to show you, because we're working with them on some drawings, how we're going to make the whole kids' area absolutely, uh, radically, outstandingly incredible for kids. And visually, it's going to be like, wow, this needs to be the best place they go in the week because the best things happen in their week there on a Sunday. So we're going to, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And then, of course, when we started looking at that, we started to think, you know what? We, we've been over six years now. And in the course of a year, thousands of people go through our cafe. And if you think about it, if next time you sit down in the cafe, take a look. Your tabletop is probably beat up and battered. But we don't notice that because we're here and we enjoy it and we don't look. But you know what? It's all about the people who come in. And so they've actually given us a revamped whole thing for there. And then actually when you come towards the front entrance, you maybe don't even notice this, but it kills me. The wood there is all tarnished and all weathered and it looks scruffy. And they've given us a whole new idea for the look of that. It started over here. But the idea is from get-go, we come in, and that becomes the place the kids want to go to. You know something they do already? I, I see that every Sunday. I see kids who cannot be patient enough for their kids' to, parents to register them because uh, they want to just run in there and be a part of it. I stepped in there during service just after it started this morning. The kids are laughing, and they're listening, and they're having a fantastic time. The game changer is the person who realizes kids matter. The people who realize this kid mattered. That's why I'm here today. And I want to encourage you. I'm not just talking about church, but I'm talking about life as a whole. Everybody matters. Everybody matters. Game changers make children part of the story. Now, that was just the start. I hope you brought your own sandwiches today. We may be here a while. But two other, things, two other things I want to say, and these are relevant in our interactions with children, very significant, but also with, with, with everybody around us in life. Number one is this. Faith is caught as much as taught. Faith is caught as much as taught. Look at 2 Timothy 1.5 here with me, if you would, for a moment. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Now, on the surface, when you look at that, it's saying, you know, hey, you're a third-generation Christian. That's cool. But there was a word in that verse that really stuck out, stuck out to me, and it was this word. He talks about his sincere faith, and he says, this faith first, what's the next word? Yeah, it's lived, for those of you who didn't say it. All right. which, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Faith that lived. That's the kind of faith that can be caught. A faith that is real. A faith that is alive. A faith that has substance to it. Acts 16 kind of suggests to us that Timothy's father was not a believer, but his mother and grandmother 
had such a living faith that it impacted him. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, it says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What God has given us is a living hope. God didn't give us a ritual to live by. He gave us a life that like we never knew before and that will go on forever. A living faith. Over and over again in the Bible, God is referred to as the living God. And I want to say this, you know, we will never impact people if they get the idea that our faith is simply a set of rules of things they should do and things that they should not do. In fact, I'll go further than that and say this, Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? You can't press people who do not love Jesus to keep his commandments. I'll let you think about that for a minute. You're putting the cart before the horse. What we need to do is show them Jesus in such a way that they will come to love Jesus too. And when you love Jesus, you keep his commandments. That's the starting point. We love people so that they see God's love in us, and they then come to love Jesus. When it comes to, to, to talking about children, the reality is that children recognize double standards. If faith is not a living thing, and they grow to despise them. If the children you insist pray before every meal hear you cursing out your mechanic over the phone, something's wrong. No, you're living, there's a double standard, and they know it. And they're going to be, I don't want that stuff. Living faith, that's what's needed. That's how we impact our world in general. Living faith, faith that's alive and that's real, where you work, in the restaurant, in the doctor's waiting room. Let your light shine, Jesus said, and people will see that, and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Faith is caught as much as taught, and when we come to recognizing that the children God has put into our lives are very significant people, we need to recognize that we can never train them just by giving them rules. We need to train them by the life of God shining from us so they catch our living faith. But then the second thing that's important is this. Loving direction teaches wisdom. Proverbs 22.6 says this, point your kids in the right direction, and when they're old, they won't be lost. Now, kids don't have developed sets of values, and don't have a develop sense to some degree, right? They need direction. They need teaching. That's part of our role. It's part of our role as parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, wherever we may fit in, as, as people who serve here in our children's ministries. The fact is, you know what? We, we, God's put us there so that we can give our children loving direction. It's, it's I mean, if you let kids you know, what do you want for dinner tonight? Well, what do they want? Ice cream. Ice cream. That was good. 
Okay, number one answer. Survey says ice cream. Okay. No, but it's like, you know, what do you want for dinner? Yeah. So, or, you know, well, what would you like to do? What? Sometimes we need to tell our kids what to do. Now, I may seem like a grumpy old man here, and you say, yeah, your kids are in their 40s now. What do you know? Uh, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. What I do know is children do need and respond to loving direction, and that's a part of it too. Proverbs 22:15 says this, young people are prone to foolishness and fads. Okay? Parents, it would have been okay to say amen there, but I know you meant it, right? Young people are prone to foolishness and fads. The cure comes through tough-minded discipline. Tough-minded, which means we need to create boundaries for children. So, not the boundary that says, if you don't do that, by the time I counted three, you're going to be in timeout. One, one and a quarter. <laughs> then you eventually get to three and say, okay, I'll just give you, I'll give you one more chance. It's like, no, create boundaries. Create boundaries. Tough-minded, disciplined kids need to know how far they can go. Because if you don't tell them how far they can go, they're going to fall over the edge one day. Our yes needs to be yes so that they know where they stand. Our no needs to be no. Then they know what we expect of them. There is a dire warning in Proverbs 13 and verse 30 and verse 17. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. Now, that's pretty gruesome. But the idea is this, if kids are allowed to get away with dissing their parents and being disobedient, what he's saying in here is one day they're going to die alone out there somewhere in the desert. So we give them direction, and we are blessed to be able to do that here for your children because um, when you drop our, your children off into our children's areas, then the fact is what we are endeavoring to do is to teach them and to guide them and to really introduce them to some basic truths about God. I asked Faith the other day, I said, so on Sunday, what, are, what, are, what exactly are the kids going to be learning in the ark? And she said, it, well, it's all about loving one another. I said, give me more. She said, it's about loving one another with your time. Wow, that's an adult theme, isn't it? Caring enough about people that you give time to your people, to people. And that's what they are teaching them in the ark right now as I'm standing here. We are in the process of developing uh, or to using a, a whole teaching program in the garden with the younger kids pitched at their level, very simple level. Why? Because we need to direct and guide them when they're young. You know why? Because kids matter. But I do want to say this as well. As a church, we're here to help you as parents, but we can't do it. We get an hour a week. You've got a lot more hours in the week. We are happy to partner with you, and we are happy to support you, but we are not the key factors in the spiritual development of your children. You are. You are. We're here to help. And, and I know the 21st century offers all kinds of challenges for, for, for people's schedules and for kids' times, but, but, but the tragedy is sometimes the things that keep kids away from church are not going to be part of their lives forever. They finish high school, and they're not going to do dance anymore. They won't be playing ball anymore. 
But the sad thing is if they haven't heard, learned that church is a priority, they're not going to be going to church anymore either. We need to lovingly guide and teach young people. What potential there is around us. What possibilities there are around us. The game changer in John 6 is the man who said, there's a lad here, and he saw the boy, and he valued him. I just want to suggest to you that every child that is in your life has got great God-given potential. And there are two ways you can influence them. Number one is your faith can be such a real living faith that they catch your faith. The second is that you lovingly guide them. You set the boundaries. Don't let the school district set the boundaries. Don't let the state of New York set the boundaries. They are your children. And you tell them this is what's good and this is not good. This is what's right. This is what's not right. They'll hate you for an instant because you put restrictions on them, but ultimately they will love you forever. I want to just, in conclusion, I just want to go back to a verse that I quoted a few minutes ago. It's the verse that says, point your kids in the right direction. No, I gave fathers a free pass, actually, John, in the end. Sorry, is it John up there? It is. Proverbs 22, 6, point your kids in the right direction. When they're old, they won't be lost. Some of you might sit here today and say, yeah, I guess I screwed up with my kids then because... They're not interested in things of God. No, 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 no. I want you to look at this. You point your kids in the right direction. When they're old, they won't be lost. Sometimes they have to go around about on their own journey. But God says they'll come around and they'll come back. You'd love to see it in your lifetime, but who knows? But that's God's promise. That's God's promise. And you can argue me and try to tell me black's white, but I'll stand on what God said, sorry, rather than on your deepest fears. I'll go with what God said. God said they'll come back. They'll come back. They'll come around. It's there. When they're old, they won't be lost. Now, you may be sitting here to say and say, well, when I was raising my kids, I, I wasn't a believer, and uh, I didn't give them the best of instruction, maybe, and I wasn't the best of examples, maybe, but I want to tell you this. They know you now, and they see you now, and they see what God's doing in you now, and actually, your life now is pointing them in the right direction, and God's promise to you is when they are old, they will not be lost. Hold on to that. Embrace that. Accept it with all of your heart. Let God be true and all men liars. Somebody said that once. It's good. Let God be true. What God says is truth. Let's pray together.